Here we are. Here we are. Back at it again, just Chris and Brian. Bye, Cam. We'll miss you. No, it was pleasant having Cam on. Not quite as pleasant doing the edit, but very pleasant having him on. He's an intelligent man. I appreciated his input. He was very fun to talk to. Oh, yeah. Cool. Well, anyway, I'm done with my coffee, so I guess it's time for us to actually kick in to a podcast. Let's do it. Welcome, Affixers, aficionados, fixers to the Affix podcast, our fortnightly conversation covering off all the outputs of the modern intelligentsia, occasionally the not modern intelligentsia, as I think back to episode like eight, but we've never gone back to ancient history that much, aside from the occasional anecdote. Much as I keep encouraging you to. <laughs> One day. So each week we talk about, I don't know, some article or podcast or book or something written by, you know the people out there in the modern intellectual sphere somehow turn it into a weird bet for the stakes of a coffee and then wrap up with the Fortnite's news in Diablo 2. Yes, my favourite bit. That's not true. Oh. But first, of course, we like to reflect on those stairway thoughts that we've had and cover off feedback on previous episodes. So, looking back on last week, I, I have to concur with your statement just earlier, Chris, that I feel like we really covered all our bases in that. I didn't really have any points of feedback to myself. There was a lot more that we could have talked about, <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, yeah, that, that conversation is endless, of course. Uh, but yeah, I think I didn't have any notes for myself specifically. So where I am going to go is way, way, way back to our conversation about Google. So uh, there was a paper linked probably a month ago. I can't even remember where I saw it. Maybe it was from Scott Alexander. Maybe it was just on a Reddit somewhere. Essentially analyzing the impact of Google Books on actual book consumption. So yeah. we sort of mentioned the Google Books project and how it kind of got shut down because of copyright concerns, etc. Sure did. And effectively, this study went into it and said, okay, we've got this sample of books that were from this particular library. Does having this massive back catalog of books being actually searchable improve the likelihood of people buying these books or does it have no impact? Does it actually decrease the probability of buying books? And what they found was for very old works and generally technical works, it did. It improved the actual consumption of those books by having all the sure. content searchable. People were much more likely to buy them, et cetera, et cetera. So win for Google Books. Apparently, they had some other quoted studies that it does not work that way for music or for movies or whatever. Like piracy really? does actually uh, impede further consumption. But for those books specifically, it was a net positive effect by having them openly available. The one caveat to it was where it is popular works of fiction that are modern. Yeah, it, it cannibalizes them a bit. So like, it, I don't know if you put really? Harry Potter up available for everyone, less people would buy Harry Potter and more people are just going to Google uh, books to consume it or whatever. Yeah. Okay. I can kind of buy that. It's sort of like, this is one of the complaints about copyright, which probably we covered in the copyright episode, but maybe I should make it more explicit that the one size fits all length of time for copyright makes no sense. So these old technical books, probably the author doesn't care. They're probably out of print. They're probably not being sold at all. So you can really only increase their sales because otherwise there are no sales because it's impossible to get a hold of. So Google Books scanning them is the only possible place to make them available because they're not commercially viable at all. So we've extended copyright again and again and again so that essentially Mickey Mouse doesn't fall out of copyright would be the opinion. And 
for fairness reasons, that has been applied to every work ever, not just Mickey Mouse. So, I don't know. I don't mind keeping things in copyright while they're commercially viable. I'm more of a diehard capitalist than I used to be and can understand that. But I think the default that all works of art are copyrighted for 70 years after the author's death is still ludicrous. Yeah, I agree with that in general. It also reminds me, I think it was even just this week gone, uh, Nintendo have once again saw a lawsuit against like a ROM website. So where you can download basically pirated copies of old Nintendo games that are no longer available for purchase and can emulate playing them on your computer. And Nintendo have sued this massive website for those being like, no, it's intellectual property infringement. You can't do that. So by nature, like I think for copyright claims, you actually have to go out and defend it to a degree. I'm not sure that that's true for copyright. That's definitely true for trademarks. This is why okay. Kleenex is now a generic form for tissue and Hoover in the UK is a generic form of vacuum and anyone is allowed to put Hoover on their machine, not just the Hoover brand. I don't actually think that's true for copyright. Yeah, okay. But anyway, Nintendo have gone out and basically shut down this ROM website and it's all for stuff that has not been available for like 10 years, like also in the news for video games because I'm a video game guy, like a copy of Super Mario Brothers 3 or maybe Super Mario 64 that was like still shrink-wrapped sold for $1.5 million this week. What? Inflation. <laughs> is $1.5 million what you pay for a coffee now? I haven't been outside in a while and I've seen that it's just inflation driving that ridiculous, ridiculous selling price. Could be that, yeah. You know, it's just crazy. So Mario 64 is not that old. No, we're wow. actually old. <laughs> That's the well, thing. Maybe we're it old. is that old and I just haven't noticed. <laughs> oh, God. So, yeah. Basically, Google Books, generally good for the overall population of books. Somewhat bad for the already popular population of books. Yeah. I think where there is a commercial market for books, I don't mind copyright incentivizing that commercial market. I just think that the the downstream effects are so intensely negative that I still genuinely think we may be better off with no copyright than with our copyright system. But I do think a balance can be struck between the two that's better than either. I agree. And also, I like emulators, but I haven't really used them for 10 years, so I'm just throwing that out there. Don't you have a fancy Raspberry Pi so you can play them on your TV? Oh, I did have that, yeah. I did that for a while. I had a, I was working like a tech support, and I was basically just sitting there playing Mega Man X3 for four nice. hours, like occasionally being interrupted doing uh, tech support. So that was fun. I'm on, uh, I'm on call again this weekend. Maybe I'll get the old Mega Man X3 out. Nice. Literally, that was the only piece of feedback I had. I think I've got another piece of follow-up somewhere, but it's lost in the Discord, so whatever. <laughs> All right, fair enough. I vanished. Well, I'm going to read out a few, not old, old emails, but oldish emails going back a little bit. I quite liked the introduction. I'm not, I'm not sure what, what tone to read this in. It's like, hey, guys, the last episode was pretty good. Or, yeah, the last episode was pretty good. <laughs> uh, so I'm not, like, totally sure how this listener feels about our last episode, but pretty good. That's a pretty, pretty good. <laughs> and a few listeners brought up something along those lines. When we were talking about voting by lottery, which is sort of one of my favourite ideas, that you just, you're opted into this lottery to become part of the tricameral legislature, part of the party house. Yep. We made no comparisons neither to jury duty nor the draft, which are both obvious things of like, here's a duty to your country and you're not allowed to just say, nah, I don't really feel like it. So the, the precedent is well set for you know, mandatory service to your country in those instances. So it's actually not that big of a stretch to force people to rule us, I guess. I feel like forcing someone to rule would have more positive connotations than forcing someone to go serve in the army at the very least. And people get pretty grumbly about jury duty as well. They do. I got out of mine. I went to mine and then like, they were like, ah, no, the actual court case is not on today. So don't worry. 
Oh, really? Just Sweet. go home. And that was it. You didn't have to come back. Yeah, I like sat around for about four hours waiting for that to happen. Then like, oh, yeah, I don't know, something happened. Bye. Wow, there you go. I do also like a little dig. They said that the height-based system seemed pretty good for weeding out all the Hitlers and Putins and making sure they can't be in charge, but Trump was quite tall, so still not without its risks. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, definitely don't want to be capturing your shortest leaders. Napoleon okay, will just... have something to say. Yeah, yes, indeed. I got one other email, so I'm just going to dig through the email backlog because I feel like I made notes to myself but never read out a few of these. An environmental economist listener, who probably knows who he is now, reckons that in the developing world, the cost of carbon abatement, so I think this is preventing excess carbon, is a dollar per ton. What? One US dollar per ton. There is an enormous, wow. enormous scale available to us if we are willing to subsidize the developing world for solar rather than coal, that kind of thing. Right, right. So this, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're... So this is abatement. I think this is prevention. So, you know, if we assume a trajectory on third world that they follow a industrial revolution path, which is sort of what they're doing, uh, at least it's sort of what China did for a while there, that if we can accelerate them beyond that. Yeah, you're kind of subsidizing the cost differential between, say, a coal power plant and a solar panel or something like that, right? It's just the cost differential. Yeah, I think that's the, the gist of yeah, how it would work. Got it. Yeah, It's not doing the thing that people are quite skeptical of microsoft on in terms of paying people to not cut down a forest that already exists sure those ones are risky and i think that's i don't know what are we paying Greenfleet for is that what we're paying Greenfleet for no Greenfleet are actually recovering poor productivity agricultural land so generally that'll have rough livestock running on it and then reforesting that land so they are redeveloping land right reforestation they're not avoiding deforestation so it's a clear positive outcome that you can hold them accountable to rather than avoiding a theoretical negative outcome. Yeah, that potentially gets paid for several times. Oh, I'm yeah. going to chop it down again. Does anyone want to pay me not to chop it down? All oh, right, I won't chop it down. Oh, feel like chopping yep. it down again. Who's going <laughs> like, to pay me this time? The logic behind not chopping something down, it holds up. It's real, but it's just yeah, it so yeah, hard yeah, to hold people accountable for it. Very, very, very difficult to enforce that. I think blockchain fixes this. Yeah, sure. Just got to get the right oracles. This is good for blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Cool. All right. What else we got? I got, uh, I think we must have talked about the. Oh, hang on. Sorry. On I just do need to put it Ooh. out here. I did manage to get another convert over to Greenfleet because they were so shocked by the IPCC report this week. And really? I talked to them oh, about cool. carbon offsets and because they're like, yeah, the first thing I've got to do, you know, is buy an electric car. And I'm like, no. What are you doing buying an electric car? The cost differential between your current car that you get yeah, like yeah. on the secondhand market and an electric car, just pay in carbon offsets. It'd be like yeah, yeah. 20 years of worth way. of carbon emissions right there. A lot there. of good that way. Yep. Oh, that has got to be the most impact that any article has had on me. And I'm glad that it's flowing downstream to several others. I think you're on it. Friends of yours are on it. Friends of mine are on it. I reckon that's yeah. excellent. If you are looking to do some good in the world for a shockingly low price, offset all your carbon emissions. It gives you carte blanche to use your dryer whenever you want, unless you talk to people who think that it does not give you the carte blanche to do that. Yeah. Like another thing, and I know this was actually secondhand recommended to me this week, was Hank Green's video on fighting climate change or whatever, what's going on on that front. And like one of yeah, his yeah. first pieces of advice is like the most important thing you can do is get an electric car. And I'm like, no, it's not. Just offset your carbon emissions. That's the first thing you can do. It's pretty cheap to do, man. Just do that. People hate offsetting carbon emissions. Just, like, no one believes in it. I guess Microsoft believes in it, but the general population seems to still be very skeptical. 
I, I, I'm not sure. It is hard. It's not completely easy to me, but I think it's the right thing to do, even if it's not as good as it says on the tin. Yeah, I think there's just, there has been publicized skepticism in the media because it, exactly as we talked about when we talked about this last time, it's just an interesting story. Like someone ripping other people off is an engaging story. And then you it kind is. of just project that across the entire industry and it's just not valid. I mean, do your own research. That's This is why you and I looked into Greenfleet. I had a good bit of independent research. You yep. asked your dad, uh, but you know what? Yeah. He's pretty credible. He's like solid credentials. He's quite credible. <laughs> yep. Yep. Definitely. So I do think that's the best thing you as an individual can do for the planet, like the highest cost benefit, I would say, if you really want to do something good and easy for the planet. Uh, I mean, if you want to buy a Tesla Model 3 performance, please do that. I kind of want to do that. I just didn't love the interior in a Tesla, but I, I totally get it. Just don't think that you are getting the highest bang for your buck in terms of helping the environment for your money. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a luxury good. It's not, you know, a sacrifice. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a altruistic thing. It's a luxury good that, you know, flaunts your green credentials, which is kind of cool too. It's true. Cool. Sorry, I've derailed the conversation. Uh, the childcare one, you know, the famous childcare that we're not sure is apocryphal about, you know, converting um, yes. things into yes. markets, kids being late and you being able to pay. Apparently in Canberra, it used to be the case that if you left your kid at a childcare for longer than an hour after you were meant to be picked up, they were abandoned and taken to the police station. And then you had to that explain to the police why you're a <laughs> terrible parent. I mean, convenient, inconvenient. I don't know. How would you feel going to the police station to pick your son up? I feel like that's going to be a really embarrassing thing to do. It'd be embarrassing the first time. <laughs> Once they got used to you, you reckon it's a pretty good free daycare? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Any hey, constable. Yep. Just here for the pickup. <laughs> Same time, seven o'clock. Dinner's nearly ready. So I guess I better get him. <laughs> oh, well, you're oh. always looking to be a voice of the community. Start lobbying the police to pick up abandoned children. <laughs> <laughs> oh, classic. There you go. Cool. And I do think we had just a model. We were talking about the patents being invalidated on all of the vaccines for COVID, which we didn't particularly like. Even me as a patent denialist didn't particularly yep. like. But I mean, and possibly we brought it up already, but the listener brings up the point of eminent domain for acquiring land for when you need to put a train station down and an airport in. They made a whole movie about it, et cetera. But the government just can pay forcibly for these rights and they have to pay a reasonable amount for it, but they can do that. And I think that that is the, possibly the correct solution if, you know, Moderna spent 10, 20 years developing this technology and has a patent on it and expect it to make a return after all that time. Just give them all the money up front and then anyone can make the vaccine if we think that that's going to save more lives. That feels valid to me. Yeah, I agree. Like, and I think that was kind of the framework we touched on when we were talking about it. Like, yeah, sure, you can take it, but pay out. Yeah, and that way the next person working out on, working on the, you know, the next person looking to make a life-changing technology isn't going to think, why do I bother? The government will just appropriate it. Even if I do do it, they will be like, you yeah, know, the government's going to make me a billionaire. So even if I can't commercialize it through the capital markets, I can commercialize it through being a billionaire by selling it to the government. That seems fine. Yeah, totally. Cool. Do we have anything else? Any other things that's, to cover? Uh, that's, that's my list. Did you have any thoughts on the conversation last week or the week before? I forgot it all. It was two weeks ago. And now that it's too long for me to remember, I'm going to make notes yeah. as I listen to it live. Now that we're fortnightly, it's like, it is much more challenging to be like, what did we specifically is, yeah. talk about last time? It's not as on the tip of the tongue. I'm going to get the show notes. I make a good list of show notes. Yeah, I could Robert do that. Robert I forgot Robert Wiblin. I had to Google him after Cam mentioned that he was best friends for life with him. He is a very attractive <laughs> man. He's a man who is like playing to many of his strengths. I'm sure he's talented in many ways, but he is a handsome man. Oh, he is, yes, a handsome gentleman. That is for sure. He's a very smart guy. Don't get me wrong, but I think the like 
attractiveness factor has like a multiplier effect on his effectiveness in the world. It's that halo effect sort of thing. The moment you see him, you're like, this guy is hyper competent. And then he probably lives up to that mostly, but he doesn't have to prove anything in the first place. People start up with the assumption that this guy knows what's up. Maybe 80,000 Hours should do an article about how you should try and make yourself look more attractive to be more effective with your career. Maybe. Seems worthwhile. If you're going to spend 80,000 hours to doing something, you may as well put a little bit of makeup on before the first hour. I don't know. Just saying. Just saying. Throwing out research ideas there, guys. (laughs) Cool, cool, cool. All right. Great stuff. So for our conversation this week, we're going back to an old favorite of Brian's, talking around inequality and wealth distributions, blah, 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 all that fun stuff. All right. So we're going to start by talking about a recent article from Vitalik Buterin. I'm assuming that's how you pronounce it, poorly. <laughs> and slightly Frenchly for a guy who's Slavic, I think. I yeah, think I'm pretty sure you, it's, you uh, it's it, Russian. You can pronounce it French if you want. No, Buterin. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just got to make sure the emphasis is on the last part of the word and it's French. That's how it goes. <laughs> but there you go. It's been a long time since I actually listened to any Russian. Hmm. Anyway, yeah, so Vitalik is the guy who started Ethereum, is basically the claim to fame there. So, you know, uh, billionaire. He's also, a, he's also a patron. Patron? What's the opposite of a patron? Patri? He is patronized anyway. <laughs> he is patronized by Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel had a grant which was, would pay uh, promising high school students $50,000 a year not to go to university and actually pursue some idea that they had to change the world rather than joining a Greek frat house or whatever. And Vitalik was one of those. Never realized that. Wow. I knew he was. there was like some relation with Peter Thiel because the first place, other than just knowing that Ethereum was a thing out there, that I learned of Vitalik was uh, an interview with Aubrey de Grey about the SENS Foundation and fighting aging and that kind of thing. Mm. And he said that Peter Thiel had stopped funding anti-aging research just oh, in yeah. terms of like general donors. He was instead funding biotech because he wanted to turn it into a profitable thing. But Aubrey de Grey was still extremely thankful to Peter Thiel because he had basically gotten a whole bunch of money through to Vitalik. And Vitalik, now being a billionaire, was being huh. the philanthropist for anti-aging uh, research. Oh, well. So that was, that was how nice. I first really came across Vitalik's name. How crazy. Anyway, he's lived an interesting life already. He's pretty young <laughs> still. How old is he? Oh, that's a good question. Younger than us for sure, still in his 20s. 27, quite substantially younger than us. Oh, wow. He looks so young too. Yeah, he does look very young. He's very thoughtful for a 27-year-old. Mm. Well, he's very thoughtful for Tyler Cowen, who's a million years old and grumpy. How old's Patrick Collison? He's 32. So, yep, just thinking about very smart, rich people. Yep. So, Vitalik was funded by Peter Thiel, started Ethereum as like a deployment of blockchain technology and smart contracts, made a lot of money, and he actually writes a good amount of blogs. And if you ever see these blogs, once again, read them. Like some of them get ridiculously mathematical and technical. What was it? Like some coin flipping Kelly bets, how you're always going to go to zero or something like that in the long run thing from about three years ago? Oh, really? Yeah, right. But this latest one that we're looking at today is dissecting the Gini coefficient and sort of seeing how that one, what does it mean? And secondly, how does it apply to cryptocurrency in general? And then what other things can you take away from this? How else could you look at things is the top line summary. So we'll work our way through that. 
So the article itself is called Against Overuse of the Gini Coefficient. And effectively, first of all, covers off, you know, what is the Gini Coefficient? We roughly talked to this previously when we covered off inequality statistics. It's essentially a ratio of two areas under curves, uh, one being if a particular item was perfectly shared or equally shared across all participants in a given community. So, you know, 1% of the community had 1% of the wealth, 2% had 2%, etc., etc., versus what the actual distribution is. So if 1% of the community has 10% of the wealth, and then it kind of like power laws off there, what's the ratio between those, I guess? Like, what's the ratio between the gap between perfectly distributed and what the actual distribution is? It looks really good at a chart. We're going to link a chart to you. It's really obvious when you see a chart. You're like, oh, I get it. <laughs> yeah, it looks good. As with so many statistical concepts, it is really, really hard to actually explain. And the formula behind it, also quite complex. I'm surprised I listened to so many economics podcasts now that you point that out. Because, yeah, economics is a very mathy, graph-heavy profession. And I just listen to people talk about it. And they describe the shapes of graphs. And I'm like, I don't really know what you're talking about, but I like your voice. Well, they usually are able to come up with pretty good actual real-world scenarios to give an explanation of it and have an example. And that way you can follow along with the story. I feel like economic storytelling is pretty fleshed out. Maybe it's Planet Money yeah, really yeah. laid the foundation there. I'm not sure. They did. Yeah, they do a good job. I mean, give us a flavor. So in the world where everyone's equal, that's a Gini coefficient of one or zero? The lower, the better. So zero. So zero. And so and the, yep. a world where one person owns literally everything and no one owns anything else is a Gini coefficient of one. Yeah, exactly. So if you're looking at the graph, it'd be zero because the two lines would be exactly the same. So there would be no gap between them, between the yep. perfectly equal distribution and what, the, what it actually is. And if it was all one, then the area would just be massive. So that's basically it. The real key thing that I wanted to like that made me want to talk about this was Vitalik's impressive insight that I'd never thought about, which is the Gini coefficient is actually measuring two things. Yep. And covering this off, it's like, first of all, it could be measuring how unequal things are, sure, but how unequal things are can be in two different ways. Like Half people could be missing out on literally everything and own nothing whatsoever or earn no money whatsoever and the other half of a population could make all the money. Or it could be like, eh, fairly equal up until that last one person who makes half of all the income or owns half of everything just by themselves out of a population of, I don't know, like 100 million people. So that one person would have an incredible amount of power, but literally everyone else in the population would have an equal amount of power, just except for that one guy. Yeah. And it's kind of like peeling apart, you know, how bad life could be in terms of suffering, like if you don't make any income or you don't have any wealth whatsoever, or how unequal is power distributed within the population was probably my key reading of that. I'll let you explain because you're much better explaining than me. <laughs> I'll do my best to explain. So I want to take it on Australia and we're going to say GDP per capita for Australia was about $70,000, I'm going to call it. I'm just going to call it $50,000 because it'll make my maths easier. So in there's two different ways a dystopia could go. So if you've got a Gini coefficient of 0.5, which I think is medium for the current world, what's Gini coefficient of Australia? 
in terms of income, we've covered this before, it's 0.33. So less unequal than Australia is currently, but fairly unequal. So there's two ways, you know, there's many different ways that this could split, but there's two different ways that it could split. If we have an average income of $50,000, then what you could have is you could have half of the population earning $100,000 each and half the population literally starving to death. So the, the half would be in perfect utopia and, you know, all balanced and be able to play with their ideas, but half the people would be literally just starving to death. So you really don't want to be in that half, which is a dystopia. Or you could have the entire population earning $25,000 a year, which is around about minimum wage. So everyone can get by, although not comfortably, and one person earning, I don't know, X billion dollars a year and has huge say over the media and the government and can fund mega projects and giant statues of themselves and shape society in their own image. And both of these are not very nice places to live, but they're both not nice places to live for very, very different reasons. Yeah, totally. Like that's what I was trying to say. I think it just reminds me of... uh, all that power being concentrated in one person just makes me think of the ancient Roman emperors, right? When they had literally all the power and everyone underneath them was basically starving, like at the edge of subsistence. Yeah, I mean, you so can have both, that's, right? That's one dystopia. <laughs> or the other is like, cool, yep, it's the Roman Empire, but they took over some place and now they're just letting the new place starve to death because all the Romans are taking all the resources. And it's yeah, a coin yeah. flip as to which side you land on, and that's awful. Both are, again, both are awful, but awful for different ways. In one, everyone gets to survive at a subsistence level, or you know, minimum wage in Australia is better than subsistence level, I would say. In one, half the people don't even get to survive, but in one, someone has all the power, and in the other one, power is very evenly distributed through half the population. Yeah, yeah, totally. So he maps this out, kind of going, oh, well, where does the world look like? The United States is a really weird outlier on this. Like, it basically has an XY chart with... Income share of top 1% versus income share of bottom 20% because the lower the share of the bottom 20%, the more likely you are to be on that like dystopia where you just have nothing, <laughs> you, you're yeah. earning nothing whatsoever. Uh, whereas the higher the share of the top 1%, the more likely you are to be in the dystopia where it's all just like one megalomaniacal billionaire making everything and lording it up over all his serfs. Yeah. The US is like right in the middle. Not in amongst all the regular countries, though. Like I actually mapped this out for Australia and Australia would be our share of the top 1% is 9.5% and our share of the bottom 20% is 5.8%. So wow. bottom 20% uh, is pretty much in line with the US. We just don't have the big billionaires. <laughs> we don't have the multi, multi, multi billionaires. Yeah. Except for those guys who sold after pay. <laughs> yeah. But like the United States is sitting out there with, you know, other countries in the world where I would think there would be like more lopsided corruption, etc. Like narco states yeah. like Colombia, Russian Federation, Thailand. No offense to Thailand, lovely country, but still. Mm-hmm. So it just surprised me that the US was so far away from all the other Western states that I can see on that chart. It really is. Yeah, yeah. I mean... This is possibly why the inequality debate rages most fiercely in the United States and looking at this graph. So I was going to say, you know, which do you think is the bigger problem and which do you think is the problem that everyone gets angry about? Because everyone's angry about wealth inequality a lot of the time. I I genuinely think this is the first time I'll ever get to use this argument. It is Scott Alexander's Mott and Bailey argument. Oh, really? Or it's like a bait and switch argument. No, I like Mott and Bailey. So explain to us Mott (laughs) and Bailey because it's it's a good arguing tactic and I plan to use it more. I always get this back to front. But it's like based on old forts where you'd have essentially a 
bailey at the top of a hill, which would be your main like structure, and then down I the bottom the you'd have I think a lot. Ah, told you I always get it back. To I, only, I only know this because the subreddit they moved to was called the Mot. They retreated to the Mot. Yeah, they retreated to the most defensible position. That makes sense. So anyway, the okay. So essentially, I'm going to just pass it over to Chris to explain the Mot and Bailey because we all know that Brian's terrible at explaining things. All right, I'll do my best. So the Mott and Bailey argument. So as Brian was trying to explain, the Bailey is a good productive area of land that your serfs will tend to work in and, you know, is fairly spread out and a little bit defensible, but not very defensible. And then the Mott is the castle essentially at the top of the hill that you can retreat to. If attackers are trying to attack you, you retreat all the way to the Mott and then they can't actually hurt you and you just wait for them to go away and then you expand back out into the Bailey again. So the Mott is truly defensible and the Bailey is useful and productive and good for getting your way. So the argument is, uh, you know, person A says homeopathic medicine can cure cancer. And person B says, actually, there's no evidence showing that homeopathy is effective. And then person A goes, actually, there's many ways for people to be healthy besides taking prescribed drugs. And so what they're using there is like their second statement is absolutely true. You can't argue with that. I ride my bike to be healthy. I try to eat less to be healthy, although I fail about that, particularly during lockdown. But they're using that as an argument as if that's an argument for homeopathy. So the Bailey they want is homeopathy is an effective medicine and everyone should take it. The mot that they are retreating to when pushed is that there are types of medicine that are not literal drugs prescribed by a doctor that are important for the health of a human being. Yeah, totally. And I'm trying to figure out how to frame my read of this, but essentially so many of the inequality debates I come across are like inequality is really, really bad because in an unequal society, all these people are suffering. And then if you try to actually ask for evidence of that, what they provide is what the share of, of income of the 1% is, not what people are actually doing by suffering. Yep. Or alternatively, people will be start out arguing against Jeff Bezos being worth over $100 billion now, is it? Probably. Or the, the likes, just basically the existence of billionaires full stop. And then they'll say- Nearly double that. And they'll say, the problem with that is that we have, I don't know, 300,000 people living under the poverty line in the United States. And it's like, those are two very disconnected arguments. I don't know that it's Mott and Bailey necessarily now that we talk through uh, it all. Sorry I, mean, for I, think, explain, I think it but- is. I think the Mott is that we live in a wealthy enough society that we have the resources to ensure no one should go hungry. Uh, and that is probably indisputably true. Just looking at food waste alone, we should not have anyone hungry. Turns out that's very difficult and I don't have the answer to it, but we have that. The Bailey is, I am very angry with this billionaire and I want to take off his wealth and power and strip him of his status. So, you know, you can't disagree with the first. We, we do have the wealth to feed everyone, at least in a, a strictly accounting sense. Therefore, we should take this billionaire's wealth. It doesn't necessarily follow. The Bailey is the political ends that they're trying to reach. The Mott is the defensible argument that is very hard to argue against. Yeah, that they're suffering. That's generally what I see in these arguments as to how the real world is. For places like Australia, as much as Reddit would have you believe otherwise, I think it's we don't have a problem with the share of the top 1%. As I said, like top 1% share of income is 9.8%, which is actually like I'm looking at this distribution here, pretty low. <laughs> pretty low, really quite low, yeah. In terms of where our problem is, is boosting up the people at the bottom. And this is the kind of conversation I had when we were talking about that ACOS paper, like pensioners, basically people on Centrelink benefits, haven't seen good increases on those for many, many years. And that's where the suffering is, like trying to just keep up with cost of living at that level. And a bit of a boost at the bottom would do 
a lot and you don't have to be really focusing on curbing the power of the Gina Reinhardt's or the whatever Clive Palmer's at the top as much as they're yeah. bleep heads. I mean- <laughs> like a bit of a paper paper tiger anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, that's very true. So I don't know. That's kind of my read on it. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, definitely. I, it, it is very illustrative to me because I had not even thought about it. Vitalik is a very clear thinker. He's quite impressive. The difference between concentrated political power and starvation level wages. So I think that we can all agree that starvation is terrible. And to a certain extent, we can probably agree that concentrated political power is a problem, but I just don't think it is anywhere near as big of a problem. So when you use Gini coefficient to measure both things, you're trying to roll them together, probably to achieve your political ends. Yeah. And as we just covered, it gives you multiple angles of attack against any person trying to fight against your political arguments without necessarily having a knockdown, clear winning viewpoint. It just is a uh, lies, damn lies, and statistics. Lies, damned lies, and statistics. Yes. That's one of those tools that you can use. So, yeah, no, that was my biggest takeaway from the article, but it also continues on, as Vitalik so often does, and really applies this to looking at a bunch of analyses that have been done on the crypto world and just the concentration of wealth across various different blockchains around and saying, is this actually a bad thing? Like, how Bitcoin is like North Korea is one of these articles where it's just like all the power in Bitcoin is totally concentrated in Satoshi Nakamoto, I suppose, since he supposedly held on to quite a bit of the initial tokens and has never done yeah, anything. I, think I don't know. You can you can tell, you can look it up. I don't know what the number is, but you can see his wallet. And I think sometimes people send Satoshi Nakamoto, sometimes send, people send money to his wallet as a, I don't know, gesture of good faith or to lose a bit or that kind of thing. And now that you bring that up, people do that to Vitalik all the time as well. And yeah, that's Famously, funny. last year he was like, oh, you gave me a bunch of money. Well, I guess I'm donating a billion dollars worth of your crypto token to fund vaccines in India. Good job, yep. Vitalik. Based on current Bitcoin price, Satoshi Nakamoto would be worth $40 billion. Wow. Less than I thought, to be honest. I don't know why I thought. That's a quarter of Jeff Bezos. Yeah, no, it's more, it's just, I don't know, for some reason I had it benchmarked at 50 in my head. It was like half a hundred million. Okay, but all right. Well, in South Sea Pesos, it's 50 billion. Who knows? It might be more very soon. Well, or much less. Or <laughs> <Indeed>. both. <laughs> Not simultaneously, but rapidly. Yes. So anyway, he applies this kind of analysis and goes, okay, well, what does it actually look like to have this concentration of power within the cryptocurrencies? and essentially boils it down to, well, you can't really use this analysis anyway, because cryptocurrencies as communities are entirely opt-in. There's just like literally billions of people out there who have zero. Zero. Yeah. yeah. No one's starving to death because they can't scrape together enough Bitcoins for their meal tonight. Yeah, exactly. So it's just, I don't know, that was an enlightening view that uh, will allow me to dismiss these articles quite quickly as they come into my feed, because I still somehow get quite a lot of cryptocurrency news in my feed. I don't know why. Huh? Probably because I read a bunch of stuff from Vitalik. I mean, he's very interesting to read. Although I, don't, I disagree that you, know, you should read everything. He writes a lot of technical stuff about Bitcoin that I don't care about, or Ethereum that I don't care about. Oh, yeah. I don't think you should read everything. It's just when you see him linked, you should read it. Yes, when you see him linked, you should definitely read him. You should read this one. That's my theory. It's the same theory as applies to Robin Hansen, Robin applies Hansen. to Vitalik. Yep. When they're linked, read it. <laughs> Yep, I should unsubscribe from Robert Hansen. He's crazy. <laughs> Finally, the article covers off alternatives to measure. And this was the main thing that made me uh, committed to getting this topic on the podcast was when we were discussing applied divinity studies become a billionaire and how increased 
income over time could be mapped onto your lifetime happiness as a log function. And Vitalik basically applies the same logic here in terms of how you could instead come up with a different Gini coefficient for income inequality, which is basically by mapping it through a log function to say, you know what, as you get richer and richer and richer, you don't linearly decrease your suffering. It's kind of like a log function. And if you discounted your overall wealth, like going from 1 million to 2 million is only as good theoretically as going from 500,000 to a million. Yeah, and probably not something I'll do. <laughs> yeah. And by feeding that oh, through, you can more accurately capture those kind of dystopia A scenarios where you might have literally nothing. You would literally be starving to death out in the streets if you were in the bottom 50% yep. Yep. who had nothing whatsoever. And then dystopia B, he has another thing. He, well, he has three proposals and frankly, I don't understand many of them. I click through them and I understand the math, but I'm not sure which one's the best. But uh, mostly... Yeah. Concentration index looks all right. Yeah, yeah. Mostly, I just kind of wish that someone would go back through all the stats that the ABS have and apply this to all our inequality data. It would be illuminating, definitely. Maybe it's you. You're, when you're running a website on stats, ABS stats. I was, but they don't have it at a granular enough level. Like, I wouldn't be able to do right. the log function on wealth because you'd still have right. to do that on an individual level, unfortunately. Right. You could bucket them and just assume yeah. the median of the bucket. You could. I mean, you can make a few assumptions, basically. Or you could apply for a job at the ABS. That seems more likely. I mean, if I proposed that I was going to write a big paper on inequality using this data, maybe they'd go for it. Maybe you get a grant and access to the data. I don't know. That was a very technical conversation for us. That was. Did you take anything else away from it, Chris? Um, I don't want to starve, but I also don't want huge political power. Okay. I actually felt like I came away from it being like, you know what? So often I come across the argument that... As long as the tide is rising for all boats, it doesn't matter how much power concentrates at the top. Okay. This is the argument that many economists make about the increasing inequality over time. If they don't yep. argue against the concept whatsoever, they'll just say, you know what? Who cares if Jeff Bezos is growing his wealth at 20% and everyone else is only growing it at 1%? They're still growing it at 1%. The absolute bare minimum isn't so bad. And by splitting it apart into a problem of suffering versus a problem of power concentration i'm still just not sure like is it just entirely dependent on the person who the power is getting concentrated in that they are a beneficent ruler <laughs> at the end of the day yes is it just that jeff bezos is creating amazon and that is benefiting us all that is good as long as jeff bezos doesn't turn around and start firing rockets at us all unless we start buying from amazon instead of walmart well I don't know. Maybe you just have enough culturally in common with Jeff Bezos that it looks like a really good thing to you. And if you are culturally distinct to him, maybe this is why people hate him so much. It's a guy like you who's getting all the power, so he's doing things that you kind of like. Maybe if it wasn't a guy like you, you would feel differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fair affiliation argument. Yeah. I mean, I'm a guy like him too, so I think he's doing good. And I think I like, you know, two-day shipping or one-day shipping, and he's improved the world. But I can see that he doesn't speak for everyone and cannot speak for everyone. He doesn't have the experience to speak for everyone. And he's got an awful lot of power. So him speaking for me is cool for me, but maybe it's not good for everyone. Anyway, that'll do for this topic. Right. Go read the article. It'll teach you some more about crazy statistics. And how difficult it is to sum up a complicated socio-political economic problem with our number. Yeah. Getting everything down to one number, like that's, GDP. That's what I took out of it most is that, um, you know, GDP or Gini coefficient or 
whatever you want to use as your number that explains all of society and which, you know, America is a worse society than Australia, but Australia is a worse society than Denmark because America's Gini coefficient is less than Australia's, is less than Denmark's. It's not that easy. No, the world is a multifaceted place. So what we're going to talk about next is thanking our listeners and patrons. Oh, that's even better than I thought. (laughs) We actually have a new Patreon that I feel like I should thank, and that Patreon's name is Dorian, I think. Dorian. Yeah, and when you become a new patron, it says, say hello to Dorian. So, hello, Dorian. Thank you for being a patron. How lovely. We do appreciate all your support, folks. Keeps us coming back, keeps us motivated. Love it when you reach out to us. Sometimes you even get a guest slot on the podcast if you're willing to talk and have lots of interesting things to say. You know, the offer's there. Yes, I mean, you know, we got Cam because we talked about these topics with Cam quite a bit. But if you do want a spot on the podcast and you feel like you have a topic you'd like to talk about us with, please reach out. I'm sure we can work something. It was a lot of fun with Cam. I'm sure it would be a lot of fun with any of you. Yep, so you can always reach us at affixpodcast at gmail.com or podcastaffix at gmail.com or on our Twitter handle at affixpodcast. We've also got a Discord where Chris and I are more commonly just posting links for you to read to get ahead of whatever we might do. Yeah, about. all the links that I just used to throw at Brian generally, I'm trying to throw in there now. Well, I'm not as good at it as Brian is. Brian's pretty good at it. He's some interesting links there. If you want to get a hold of the show notes, yeah, it's a place to be. Winner. That's it. Thanks once again, everyone. Recommend us to your friends, review us, do whatever you have to do, or just listen and enjoy. That's fine too. That's fine too. Cheers. What are we talking about now? What's our second point of talking after wealth inequality? Well, you'll never believe it. It's wealth inequality. Yes. Actually, we've sort of moved from income inequality to wealth inequality, so maybe that's slightly different. That's true. We did kind of touch on way back when, when we first talked about inequality in Australia, Kind of the distinction between wealth inequality and income inequality. I also have heard recently, probably on Freakonomics, that European wealth inequality is far, far worse than American wealth inequality, but American income inequality is worse than European income inequality. So the income inequality bit I did know, but yeah. I mean, that that is interesting and worth noting, but I found it, uh, it's one of Piketty's points that like, we all say, oh, well, all the billionaires today are Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and they're self-made men and blah, 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 blah. So capitalism works and everything's awesome and whatever. And his argument is like, no one really knows how much the landed gentry of the UK are worth. Like they have a lot of land and it hasn't changed hands in hundreds of years. So it's very difficult to put a value on. No one does put a value on when you know Jeff Bezos owns a billion shares and they're worth $190 each. Then you're like, well, just worth $190 billion. And that's about as far as a lazy journalist can get when it's trying to you know, value the entire moors of Scotland because Lord Farquhar VI owns them now. It's a much more difficult challenge. So a lot of the wealth is hidden, as it were, particularly in old Europe. Yeah, for sure. And real estate values have been going crazy as interest rates go down. We've talked about that plenty as well. Mm. Uh, So that inequality, where it's all tied up in essentially land values in old world capital cities, it'd be up there for sure. Yep. I mean, yeah, land wealth is the most difficult form of wealth for me to get my head around for capitalism to work generally. I think it's a real challenge in general. Yeah. It is also arguably one of the most easy for true rents to be extracted rather than uh, just earning a generic return. So anyway, we're talking about wealth inequality. This is a link from a link. I've referenced the economist Scott Sumner, several times, and I thought I was going to weave a conversation in about specifically one of his articles. And then I read the article again, and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to click this article that he's actually writing about and read about that instead. So the article 
is Wealth Inequality, Should We Care? from Dean Baker at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. I had no idea which part of the political spectrum this think tank was from. It became self-evident only at the very end, but it seems to be co-founded by Dean Baker and Mark Weisbrot. More famous names that you, if you're into economics, you will have heard of. Uh, the advisory board includes Robert Solo from the Solo Growth Model that I've previously referenced, as well as Joseph Stiglitz. I cannot remember for the life of me what Joseph Stiglitz is famous for right now, but also a famous name. I think he's kind of on the center left, basically. Essentially, the article is analyzing, you know, wealth inequality. It exists. As Chris just noted from Thomas Piketty, we don't really have that great of measures of it, but should we care in the first place? And you know what? I talked a lot in the previous one, so I'm going to throw over to Chris since I know a lot about economics and would probably take a lot for granted in trying to explain this. Sure. So there's a few things that he talks about. So one of the big, um, I I really wanted to tie the first conversation into this and try to work out which one he's worried about, but he sort of still seems to be worried about both to a certain extent. I mean, one of the major points on this is that a strong welfare state can be a significant replacement for wealth. Like the main reason, I don't know, if you're Jeff Bezos, the main reason you want to get wealthy is so you can make a giant rocket and go into space. But a reason for many of us, and we've talked about fire before, is to build a large amount of wealth to guarantee an income stream into your retirement, right? That's the concept of the fire people is that you can get build that income stream surprisingly early stage in your life by building a huge pocket of wealth. Yep. And so if you have some kind of social security, some kind of pension from the state or from your company, and you've got a guaranteed income stream in your retirement anyway, then you actually don't need huge wealth. You don't need to be a multimillionaire in order to comfortably live out your life golfing or spoiling your kids or spoiling your grandkids or however you want to live out your retirement. That income stream provided by the government or your company is pretty much a direct substitute for huge wealth. 100% that. Uh, I think that's like a good analysis of it. So really trying to take care of that problem of suffering in general by having a wealth buffer there, like wealth in and of itself can provide an earnings and an income stream. But at the same time, it can also be there that you can draw down on in periods of basically hardship, like short term hardship, you can draw down on your principal and absorb damages that you otherwise wouldn't be able to. If there is a strong safety net, that can also support you. Yeah, particularly if it's a you know a reasonably designed safety net that can help you more or less at different stages of your life, depending on what you need. Yeah, exactly. So he kind of quickly summarizes his position, essentially, is that he doesn't consider wealth a very good measure of inequality, predominantly because of three reasons. First of all, it depends on financial asset values actually being measured uh, that can also fluctuate wildly, as we just mentioned before with Satoshi Nakamoto. Yes, worth $40 billion. Or, Or as we mentioned, with the old landed gentry. Additionally, wealth can be quite a bad measure of people's economic circumstances. If you have a lot of your wealth tied up in a house that you bought 50 years ago, you might not necessarily be able to just draw down on that real estate value. Like It's kind of hard to go to a bank and negotiate a reverse mortgage or something like that. It's hard to draw down when you don't have an income stream to supplement it and justify being given more debt in the future, et cetera, et cetera. So just because you are a millionaire on paper doesn't mean that you actually have the liquidity to support yourself in hard times, essentially. Yep. Finally, that wealth and social insurance are very direct substitutes, exactly as Chris explained just before. I also like, I mean, he brings up the point that particularly for our parents' generation, a lot of people were not relying on a superannuation or 401k-like scheme to just have a 
a blob of capital that then spins off dividends, be that a, a house where you get rent or a bunch of shares that pay dividends or never pay dividends and just go in, up in value indefinitely for tax reasons, I guess. But a lot of people get a pension and that when they retire, their employer guarantees them 70% of their income for the last three years for the rest of their lives or something along those lines. And that doesn't get counted as wealth. And in Gini coefficients and in wealth measurements, that person may have a net worth of zero. But if they were to have a capital blob that would throw off, I don't know, 70% of the average wage of $50,000 is $35,000 a year, that would actually be you know, worth $700,000, something like in, in that order. Um, yeah, so exactly. They could be reasonably said to be in possession of $700,000 of capital, but because it's in the form of a pension, we no longer call it that. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, those things generically, I think we've referred to them previously as well, are called defined benefit plans. Technically, they should sit on company balance sheets. So they, sh- I guess like financial standards have changed over time and reporting on that is much more refined now. But theoretically, governments should be able to get that kind of data to be able to factor it into their calculations. But at the same time, defined benefit plans have been kind of superseded by defined contribution plans over time, which are the ones, exactly as you said, the savings accounts that are captured. So that will distort the movements over time in these kind of inequality measures, especially if you're applying them to wealth, because you had this big pool of people getting pensions from their employer in the form of a defined benefit where you get 70% of your finishing wage over the last three years or whatever it would be for the rest of your life that was technically added to zero wealth. Whereas everyone else actually saves money now and it's held in their own name in a superannuation or 401k or whatever. And that does get counted into wealth statistics and it makes the boomers look richer than any generation previous. Now, they're probably richer anyway, just because there's economic progress, but makes it even more inflated. Yep. You want me to hit you with a tangent? Because we were talking about house wealth before. I'm just wondering, and we said, you know, it's difficult to draw, you know, they always say you can't sell a door when, or you can't sell a bathroom when you hit an emergency. So I think that's a popular thing in real estate investment. I just want to ask your opinion. I mean, they're no longer an affix. We're actually going to talk about some original stuff here. But in what way could a person who bought their house in Cronulla in the 60s for $30,000 and now it's worth $1.5 million, but it's still their sort of tumble down family home and they, they grew up there and their kids grew up there and they don't want to leave, but they have a $1.5 million asset that's fully paid off. How, how fair is it for us to call them wealthy? I mean, personally, I don't see any problem with it whatsoever. No, I agree. I mean, but, you know, there, there could be an argument and an argument gets made in California with the grandfathering of uh, wealth tax, et cetera, that, you know, they live in a modest house and it's only because they bought it so long ago that it's worth so much money. They shouldn't really count as wealthy, that their, their means are small and they live in a not very nice house. It just happens to be in a really desirable area now, but it's their family home and they shouldn't have to move out of their family home, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so they can't count as wealthy. Do, do, so you don't agree with that? No, I think in general, it's kind of, if you're going to take a kind of wealth tax approach and assess everything based on capital markets, those same capital markets should be accessible to anyone. And that person in that situation should be able to go to banks and refinance for that value that is there. And it just gets and it just gets tacked on as additional debt on a mortgage. And sure, when they die, it'll have to be taken out of the inheritance, out of their estate, that net amount still outstanding because of the wealth tax from a mortgage that they had to deal with a bank that they might not have been capable of. But if that's the situation that you're setting up with a wealth tax, you got to make the economics and the capital markets and the capital valuations fair to everyone involved. Yeah, I agree. And so, you know, how much uh, there would be clear pressure from society that they should move out of that house. How fair is that, do you think? I think that is difficult, but 
once again, I think capitalism kind of solves it in that, yeah, sure, like the problem is social in terms of you shouldn't be wasting this space here. You're making inefficient use of it. You kind of just lucked into it with lottery, I guess, would be the social argument there. Yep. And by making you pay wealth tax, we're going to force you to give up that land. But if you force them to actually realize that value of the land by taking out a mortgage against it and having that wealth actually be liquid, then it kind of solves the problem itself. They get to enjoy that and they can decide whether, you know, all those happy memories they have of this family house in Cronulla that they got so long ago is worth the $1.2 million that they have left over after the wealth tax or whatever that they had to pay. Yeah, yep. But this is all contingent on, like, actually being able to go and redraw. Like, if people can't navigate the financial systems or, like, putting the burden on a 90-year-old to figure this out and not give them social support to support them through dealing with a 22-year-old banker who might not be able to talk in concise and clear language to them, that's when it does become unfair. That's my only sort of concerns with it in general. Maybe I have too much faith in capitalism. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I have, I, I, I'd be surprised to hear that I agree with you largely. That's just <laughs> what we do on this podcast. I just like to put the question out there. And I'm not even sure that this necessarily has to be talked about in, in regards to a wealth tax, right? It could just be someone who hasn't done a very good job saving for their retirement, but their family home now is worth $3 billion because they happened to buy it in Sydney 40 years ago. You know, there is a lot of pressure from society for them to move out of that home and they have to decide themselves, is it really worth me, you know, staying here for $3 million? Uh, yeah. I think forcing that choice is the correct choice. I'm not sure how, well, I suppose you don't pay capital gains on your primary place of residence, do you? No, no, you wouldn't. No, so. And it would all be grandfathered in anyway because it would have been bought before 1984. So. True, also true, yep. So I do think that's a good way of making people really think about, you know, it is the family home and that is quite valuable to you and it's possibly more valuable to you than it is to anyone else. But you, you really have to think about, you know, it, it could be really valuable to Is it really cruel to make to them people. think about it though? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting... Is it cruel to like, maybe they have information aversion? I'm not sure. I mean, you may well. And this is the blessing of the curse of financializing everything, right? And I think more and more we do financialize everything. We're talking about financializing pensions, which are already a financial product, and we want to financialize them yet further by describing them in capital terms rather than in flow of income terms. Do you lose something there? Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, that was an interesting tangent. Thank you. What were my other big notes from this? So going back to kind of our conversation about Vitalik, he kind of talks about wealth and political power at the start. And makes the observation that if wealth inequality is the big evil that people want to combat, then they should be celebrating a drop in the stock market, essentially, because that means that the people who own all the capital, the Jeff Bezoses who are so rich because Amazon's a public stock, uh, they should be really happy when the S&P goes down. And you don't tend to see that. Uh, And Dean Baker makes the argument that just as a logical matter, You don't get to be upset about a rise in the stock market, increasing inequality, and then not be happy when there is a fall in the stock market, which then reduces inequality. And my generic read on that, and I don't know if you've heard similar things, is I strongly suspect that a good portion of the loudest voices about inequality and the people who wheel a guillotine out the front of Jeff Bezos' house actually would be happy. Like- yeah. Sure, they'd actually rather transfer the wealth as it stands than to destroy it entirely, but they'd still be happy with it being destroyed. I wonder, I feel like this is a brush that libertarians and market types like to paint the far left with, that, you know, they'd be happier to destroy wealth than let it be unequal. Do I think it's true? I mean, I'm sure you can get instances where it is true, but I'm not sure that it's generally fair. I think direct transfers are very popular amongst a lot of people. 
I'm not totally sure that wealth destruction, I think it's easy to read that when you understand capital markets and what it would do to Amazon's share price if it was uh, co-opted by the US federal government, for example, if they just took over Amazon, it's like, this is a US federal department now, it's the department of Amazoning. What that would do to the value of that entity is, you know, you and I both believe it, it would go down and go down quite substantially without Jeff Bezos and his trusted groomed lieutenants at the helm. I think that that is... That is my opinion of what would happen to Amazon stock in so much you could value it once it's a once it's a public entity. Yep. But I think that the possibly the people wheeling the guillotines in front of Jeff Bezos's house uh, don't believe that. That they believe that Amazon. That I see this some in some of my left wing friends that don't understand. It's, it's it's hard to say. Oh well, they don't. If they only understand like I do, they definitely agree with me. It's such a pretentious, <laughs> terrible thing to say. And I promise, I'm not talking about you, listener. Your your opinions are all very smart and well informed. And the people I'm thinking about probably don't even listen to the podcast. But it is easy to conflate the share price and the amount of money as like real money and not just an expectation of future profits, because that's all a financialized product is. Is it's worth a multiple of an expectation of you know discounted future cash flow, as Matt Levine likes to remind us. Except for GameStop. Uh, <laughs> Um, and once that expectation of future profits goes down, the wealth is destroyed. So it's, it's different to real money in some ways, although it's analogous in other ways. And I think that those people would be very happy taking the billion real dollars that Jeff Bezos does have and pouring it into the perfect market where you can buy a banana for a dollar and just conjuring a billion new bananas out of thin air and solving world hunger. And that is not my understanding of how wealth or bananas work. Yeah, I like you. That last bit, I totally agree with. In terms of the people wheeling the guillotine out, I think it's just because they're the loudest voices. I agree that it's like the majority of people who are against wealth concentration are wanting transfers and it just unfortunately doesn't work the perfectly the way that they think it would work. But I just think there are a decent cohort of people who are just loud, who want to destroy things, unfortunately. Yeah. You know what? Destruction has its appeal, but- only when you think about it for three seconds. I mean, I've been a turn-edge boy. I get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I like setting things on fire every now and then. So there's that. The other point that I really, really liked, which we've also touched on before, was covering off the fact that if you try and measure wealth inequality, there's a lot of people who have negative wealth and it's predominantly yes, I like, that. <laughs> like people who've just gotten medical degrees who have hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt. And do they really need support? Sure, they're the least wealthy measured by, you know, net wealth, which is what we like to do. And it does sort of, it gives at least some perspective to this perspective of, of um, like, oh, the seven richest men in the world have more wealth than the bottom 40% of people. And like, that's because there's actually a lot of people who are negative. I personally probably have greater wealth than the poorest 20% of the world because they essentially have zero. So if I had any wealth whatsoever, uh, I would be richer than the, you know, the poorest 20% of people out there. Yeah. I really like that line. Yeah, I probably have more wealth than the bottom 20% of the world's population. Gee, that made me feel good reading it. Even if you had zero wealth, you're going pretty yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going all right. I mean, it's, it's important to count your blessings. I really try to remind everyone of that, of how wealthy we are. It's hard to always keep in mind, but I, I, you know, I'm sure people think I'm arrogant when I say how rich I am, but I really am just trying to be grateful. I understand that by being in a Western world and being an intelligent, I am just astonishingly wealthy by global standards. Like a really, truly historical or global standards either either historically in Australia or globally today. I'm just so astonishingly crazy wealthy. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's wild. What a time uh, we live in. And yes, I personally have more wealth than the bottom 20% of people on the planet, probably, uh, which is, you know, horrible in some ways, but really gives me a lot of reflection on how lucky I am. Yeah, yeah. 
And then the thing that I alluded to at the start where I figured out where on the economic spectrum they lie, left or right, was when he got talking to taxing wealth and then started making arguments for modern monetary theory. Now, this was not what I expected whatsoever from a link from Scott Sumner, who has had post after post saying how wrong modern monetary theory is. So it was fun to see this come up and just be like, whoa, I did not expect that at all, which is essentially his argument is taxing wealth wouldn't really work anyway. You need taxes to restrict consumption, not to literally pay the bills in accordance with modern monetary theory. Essentially, you just need to limit there being too much demand. The government can spend all it likes. And if it's just pumping money out there, it still has to just constrict demand a bit. Otherwise, there'll be runaway inflation as you know, demand exceeds supply that pushes the cost up or the price up would be the yeah. generic argument there. First of all, I don't know that that actually genuinely holds. Like constraining consumption is encouraging saving and therefore encouraging wealth accumulation is another way of framing that. Also, there's things that we want to specifically target within consumptions or there's other ways of taxing, uh, Pigovian taxes or you know taxing negative externalities, that kind of thing can be pretty good. So it's... <laughs> Tax solely focusing on restricting consumption, not necessarily the only reason we need to have taxes. But it was interesting seeing someone coming from the sort of left side of the economic spectrum and saying, no, well, taxes, don't bother. Don't bother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's certainly an interesting point that you could tax a lot of Jeff Bezos' wealth and he'd still be firing gigantic rockets into space and owning 10 houses, all of which are 5,000 times bigger than my house. Like, the majority of his wealth isn't in consumption goods. Yeah, like... That was the thing that like really surprised me here, kind of taking the realistic approach to what would a wealth tax be? You know, if we taxed these people 50% of their wealth, they'd still be multi-billionaires. And <laughs> it's like- Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not going to change their lifestyle. They're not going to be like, oh, I guess we've got to sell some of the houses and tighten our belts a little bit. And it's like, it doesn't matter. Once you've got that much wealth, you really are just playing a power game, which is maybe yeah. the reason to tax wealth at that level is that you then concentrate more power in the hands of the government, which is democratically accountable rather than market accountable. But, you know, I have my scepticism of both, but I have a lot more scepticism of democratic accountability than I do of market accountability than the average person. I'm not sure which way I lean in terms of general, but I think that markets keep people very accountable and democracy keeps people somewhat accountable. Yeah, that's a good way of framing it. I mean, it was also just like, I feel like when people are making the argument for wealth tax, the like view for the future that they project is that it's essentially going to be a 100% wealth tax over the value of a billion dollars. So Jeff yes. Bezos is yep. no longer going to be Lord of the Universe. And it's just not yep. like when you actually think about it for three seconds, it's just not going to end up that way. I mean, you know, that's a popular bill. You know, I've heard it recently in that, yeah, you're just not allowed to be a billionaire. And anytime you have over a billion dollars, we're just, we're just going to tax everything over a billion dollars. The maximum you can have is $999 million. And that's plenty for anyone. And it is plenty for anyone. But like the mechanics of that is a government takeover of Amazon. Like someone's got to own Amazon. Amazon is a thing that is genuinely worth a lot of money because of all the benefit that it brings to the world. Someone's got to control that. I like it being in control of the founder for somewhat for incentive reasons, but also just probably because he knows how it ticks pretty good uh, rather than being in control of a government. Yeah, we had that conversation many, many times, but it's nice to get it out there on the airs for everyone. Yeah. Um, and then kind of it just wraps up saying, you know, Dean Baker, the author, would argue the focus on the enormous fortunes of the likes of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos is just an enormous distraction. So that focus on the concentrated power of the 1% from Vitalik's dissection of the Gini coefficient, it's exactly as we discussed earlier. It's kind of a side argument that you can bring in to bolster other political motives that you have. 
The extent to which they actually drain resources from the economy is not really well measured by their wealth. And frankly, personally, I'd argue that it, insofar as it is measured by their wealth, it shows that they are actually improving our ability to have more consumable resources. That's my little add-on yes. there, by the way. <laughs> sure. I mean, that, that's what you hope that capitalism does. If you're a supporter of capitalism, that's what you have to believe, right? Yep. I don't think it's increasing our spiritual resources. Hmm. Probably not. Are we building a lot more churches or shrines or anything like that? I guess not. I don't know. Perhaps it gives us more free time for reflection. I'm not sure whether that's good or bad. Yeah. And then uh, Dean Baker's main argument here is to just basically give everyone democracy vouchers to democratize being able to support political candidates. And by increasing the voice of everyone else in society, that will nicely offset the concentrated power that has amassed amongst billionaires. I think they tried this. I don't know. Yeah, it's a weird thing to say. It seems weird to say, oh, we shouldn't curtail their power because what's even the point, blah, blah, blah. There's no point in doing it. But then, like, we do have to offset their power by increasing everyone else's. I'm like, isn't it sort of the same thing from an accounting perspective? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's just going to end up increasing the wealth of the politicians who get that donated to them. Yeah, is that good? It feels like something that a politician would argue. Hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. It was fun to read. It was always... I don't know. I love reading about inequality. I'm sorry that I forced it on you, listener, but I hope you enjoyed and got to check out these oh, things as God. well. I thought you were going to fo- apologize for forcing it on me. I'm like, I like it almost as much as you do. I love it. We've <laughs> yeah. talked about it so many times in this podcast. It's an interesting I don't know, it's, it's an interesting perspective on our financialized world. For sure. We'll move on to coffee bed time. Coffee bed time. Guess what we're betting on? Uh... The price of Ethereum. Oh, that's a good one. No, we're basically on Australia's Gini coefficient. <laughs> right, Australia's income inequality has been rising since 1981, at least according to the World Bank data. Interestingly, it's just sort of randomly thrown around. What did we actually want to bet on here? I mean, up down would be the first one. Do you think it's going to get worse or better by the next time it gets measured, which is never? In income inequality, I think income inequality is definitely going to go up next time it's measured. Go up, yep. Yep. Okay, the old K-shaped recovery. Yeah, definitely K-shaped recovery. And, you know, all these uh, folks working from home who are now working two jobs. Sure. Let's do that. Uh, That sounds too hard. It does seem like more mental effort than I want to go to at this time. Cool. What do you think? So we're both agreed that it's going up. I think we're both agreed that it's going up. So we're betting on income inequality. Your ACOS data would suggest that in 2014-15 it was 0.3. It was actually pretty flat from 06 to 14, 15. That's something. Yeah, so 0.328 in 2017, 18. I am going to say that the year closest to 2020 is going to have that around 0.3. You know what? I'll be very skeptical and I'll say it's going to be the high side of 0.34. Oh, you're going to say it's above 0.34. Yep. So I'm happy to take either side, but my opening offer is I'll take the high side. Um... Hmm, how much do I think? So if we're doing it, so we want to say post-pandemic. So if the closest data we get to this is 2019, we don't want that. Yeah, I think soonest after. Yeah, that's a good point. Good soonest first after, first after 2020. Yep, yep. Um, I don't really know how the maths of this works. So I'm just going to give you the high side of 0.34. That seems like, it, yeah, it does seem to shift very, very slowly. This number, Australia is holding it pretty constant. 0708, which is around the GFC, was 0.336, so even it wasn't above 0.34. But the huge run-up in stocks has to have an impact. Oh, no, not on equivalised disposable household income. That's what we're talking about, right? 
Oh, that's a good point because I'm pretty sure this actually includes as transfers. Yeah. So if JobKeeper is a thing, which JobKeeper is definitely a thing, then that might pat it out a bit. Mm. Mm. All right. You know what? I'll stick with my high side, but that might give Chris the advantage. Yeah, it might be a fairish bet. Okay. The old welfare First state. published ABS number of this metric, which I'll just copy and paste above 0.34. Yep. Chris wins if no. Brian wins if yes. I'll take my headphones off and you can talk about Diablo 2 for a bit. Hooray! <laughs> <sighs> so, oh, there's so much going on with Diablo 2, both in my interest in Diablo 2 as well as in Diablo 2 in general. So this weekend... They had the first open beta for actually playing on Battle.net for the remaster. Lots of people playing around with how Diablo 2 works on there, finding all the bugs to report. They actually only had it for a select amount of characters. I can't remember which ones were open, but people were able to, like even within the two days of it being open, people were able to get through the code and unlock playing around with other characters like the Assassin and Necromancer and that kind of thing. Saw people streaming some of that. Seems fun. I don't know. I'm kind of sad I didn't get onto it to be able to test how well my own machine holds up to it. I kind of booted mm. up my new computer and started playing Borderlands instead, which is fun. New gaming machine. Very fun. Uh, and then from my side, I've just been researching the heck out of the whole history of speedrunning world records in Diablo 2. And I feel like I had my own CGP Grey moment where I'm like, wow, this was a lot bigger than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Have you gotten into what is truth yet? And you're like, someone said that a guy ran it really fast one day, but there's only a link to a forum, to a dead forum, to another link. Oh, I mean, that was how it all started. That was like, yes, <laughs> I was coming into it and I'd heard of all like the current streamers talk about the history and like the old time streamers who've been around since the early days of speedrunning of 2015. I had no idea, man. <laughs> going through the forums, it's like a rabbit hole. Yeah, Brian does message me every now and then. And he's like, I wrote 500,000 words on this script so far. It is going to take me the rest of the year to read if I read constantly. 80,000 hours. You should talk to Rob Will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know what? It's been a fun little project. I don't know if I'll ever actually turn it into a video or anything or if I'll just put it up and just like a, a written history that people can look at. But diving into uh, the history of a niche topic you're interested in is surprisingly fun. I'm glad you're enjoying it. So that's it. That's Diablo 2. The, uh, what are we? We're only a bit over a month away from Resurrected actually being released. So there you go. Wow, that's so soon. Cool. Well, listeners, we probably don't have enough in the Patreon P bank to buy it. So if you're on the fence and you really want Brian to play a fancy new video game on his fancy new PC, now's the time. Now's the time. All right. It was a fun one this week. Incredibly technical. So uh, maybe we should put a warning on the, <laughs> on the show title or something. Yeah, I'm sure you'll come up with something witty and then I'll either copy it or modify it. Lovely. All right. See you next time, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye. I like watching my keyboard waveform on the Audacity. <laughs> Bang.